Joe David Wilson has graduated from this life. Going forward, we will continue to honor his legacy, knowledge, and love of thy Lord by continuing to play sermons pre-recorded prior to his graduation. We invite you to honor his memory by attending worship services or joining us online for a further Bible study. Welcome to In Search of the Mind of God. We invite you to search with us the mind of God. Searching His mind, we can always be sure our salvation will not be based on man's ideas or false feelings. It will never be our purpose to promote any denominational doctrine of any religious group. Man is fallible. God is not. This program is brought to you by the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ, 384 East Midway Road, White City, Florida. Bible study courses and personal teaching are available. We purpose to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The God of heaven has made it possible that we can understand His love and can know the blessings that we have in store for us and can relish in the glory that He has been able to espouse to us in the living of the Christian life. Now, one thing we've established is you can't read a heart. You can't even read your own. God reads the heart. Another thing that we've established is when we read the heart, we condemned ourselves. But God has been able to know the good and the bad. And because we as faithful Christians have the opportunity of prayer, we can go to God in prayer and the bad is forgotten. God gains amnesia to that truth. And it's easy a lot of times to look at ourselves in the opposite way because we remember all of the bad. But God said in Hebrews the 8th chapter the 12th verse, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. God is greater than our hearts because He knows the whole time of service. He remembers what we've done for good. And not only that, but He sees the end from the beginning. And this is so uh, instructional and so helpful. Well, there's examples that I use. I use the example of Simon Peter. A lot of people think that Jesus was too easy to give in on Simon Peter. That when he came back and Peter said, I go fishing, Jesus came after Peter. And when he came after Peter to have that silent meal or breakfast, after that breakfast, Jesus comes to Simon Peter and said, Simon Peter, lovest thou me more than these? And Simon Peter said, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee. And God forgave him. And a lot of people have overlooked the fact that God knew the heart of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter, as the example, was the one who himself had the condemning heart. And because of his condemning heart, he'd given up on the cause of Christ. And he went to his fellow disciples and he said, I'll go fishing. Won't go with me? It's over. I've made such a mess of this situation. There's no way that anybody can ever forgive or overlook what I've done. I cursed and swore and denied that I'd ever know it. So it's history for me. It's all over. Hell's going to be my home. Might as well get ready. Bow as best as I can so that I can withstand the heat. But listen to the question that Jesus asked Peter. Simon, son of Jonah, 
lovest thou me? Now so reticent was Peter to forgive himself and to think that that was possible, his answer was, Lord, you have my word on it. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa. Simon's word wasn't all that good. It was Simon who said to Jesus, All men may forsake thee, but I will never forsake thee. Even though I have to give my life, I give you my word, God. Thou knowest that I love thee. When our hearts condemn us, God is that that has the ability to be greater than our hearts. And he judges the success from the failures, the betrayals, from the triumphs. And the secret is that in our failures, there always could be successes if we learn from the failure how to succeed in the next test or trial. And then we found out that God's our only refuge. Sometimes in the season of disobedience and in the shameful sin of walking unguardedly, prayerlessly, our heart is not in service. And when we come to the services of the Lord even, and in attending, maybe our feet are sitting under the pew, but our mind is somewhere else. And because of that, we're not gaining the strength that should be ours. And our feet find themselves in the miry clay, but the deadliest sin might be the sin our heart does not condemn us for. And we think that that's okay. I've unfortunately had to deal with a lot of members of the Church of Christ over the 50 some years I've been preaching the gospel. And they think all they got to do is attend. Mike and I kind of have a jovial statement which uh, I'm afraid that a lot of people won't understand. But there's a lot of people that lucked in the right door that lucked in the right baptistry, that lucked in the right family. And had they not been in the right family, lucked in the right door, and lucked into the right baptistry, their obedience would have been no better than a denominational person who was unfortunate and went into the wrong place. They don't have any conviction. They don't have any knowledge. They've not been taught. They've not studied. They have no desire because they don't see Christianity as the means of being able to know the mind of God. They see Christianity as some kind of a road worship where if all they did is sit in the right pew, they don't think that gets them to heaven. Sometimes the deadliest sin that we commit is the habitual sin that our conscience will not save us from because there's no warning device that is given us. And you may not appreciate the fact that the preaching of the gospel is that warning device that God has commanded the preachers of the, of the work of Christ to preach and, and warn every man and, and test every man and, and try every man so that we're not overwhelmed in a sin that we're not or an habitual attitude of which we're not uh, uh, agreeable to God. And there's a lot of people when they hear the gospel of Christ preached, they'll say, well, I've been in the church of Christ all my life. I never heard that. Well, that may be the problem. Maybe you went to the right pew. Maybe you went to the right building. But the preacher you had didn't have any idea that he was a servant of Jesus Christ and his job was to warn you. Now, other sins are so false to the Christian life that when we commit them, we know they're self-condemning. 
And then we go back and commit them all again. You know, the world's real dark. We're not doing too well, we think, in Christianity by the standards of the Word of God. And at such an hour, our hearts are committed to the fact that we're a fatal flaw in the plan of God. But God's love and the obedience to His commands has left us in a position to know that God is greater than our hearts. Oh, of course, about God is something we don't ascertain. And what I tried to do was explain it to you last time. God sees and knows all things from the beginning. And at such an hour, if our hearts have condemned us, God knows the past and He knows the future. And the one thing we don't remember about God, there's the sin that we've committed that He doesn't know. So if you get it on some kind of a graph and you take out the low end, you can see that by the forgiveness and the non-remembrance of those sins, we may just be in a whole lot better position than we ever thought possible. I brought you remembrance the prodigal son. The prodigal son was the guy that went to his father and said, Give me that that is mine. And he went out into the world and he wasted. That's what prodigal means. He wasted his substance in righteous living. And of course, like everybody else, the prodigal son came to a time when the groceries ran out. And when the groceries ran out, all of his fair-feathered, fair-weathered friends uh, left also. And the prodigal son wound up in a pig pen feeding the pigs. Now, if there's anything the royalty of a Jewish royal citizen would never have thought himself to do, it would have been being in a pig pen feeding pigs. But that's the only job in town he could get. A lot of times people don't understand the way God works with his children. But you see, God put the prodigal son in this pig pen so the prodigal son could come to himself. And the Bible says that when he came to himself, he says, well, my father has houses and food, and that's despair. I know what I'll do. I got nothing else left. There ain't no open end to this situation. I can't ever advance beyond pig feeding, so I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father, and I'll say, Father, I've sinned against thee, against heaven, and in thine eyes. And I'm no longer worthy to be called thy son. Oh, you know the end of the story. Though your sins be as scarlet, the Bible says, they shall be white as wool. And in a dark hour when we forget this, we forget the God that we're serving and the God that we love. A lot of times people get the attitude that God is just there trying to pick on them, just trying to get them to go to hell. And he's up there and remembers keeping records. He says, oh, I got this one. Well, this is going to keep him out of heaven. Yeah, man, I'm so glad he committed that one. Because, you know, I was on the, on, on, the, on, the, on the edge. And I was balancing between whether he was or he But this thing, I'm glad I finally got him. Oh, my friend. I had a young man ask me the other day. What fact it was today. Are you going to dump me? My answer to the question was, so I got way too much money invested in you. Dunk him? Well, if I was going to dunk you, I'd have never invested in you. 
And says, I invested in it, I showed how much love I had for you. You mean after all this time and all this effort, I'm going to then turn around and dump you? Well, that's what a lot of people think of God. They think he does worried about nothing but getting ready to send everybody to hell. But see, God knows we're weak. And he knows that we don't have the constitution that we should have. And so because of the Holy Spirit that's given to us to abide in us, and Jesus Christ is our intercessor, our mediator, and our lawyer before the bar, he also knows how to be merciful. And being merciful, he'll lead us home. You can always appreciate the love of God unless you've never been taught. Years ago, I was preaching and, and I was talking to my wife and, and she said, you know, I want to make a suggestion. You know, it seems like it's impossible to live the Christian life. Do you think that's impossible? There's a lot of people seemingly get the idea that the road, the road is too straight and the way too narrow and therefore there's no possible way for us to go home. Now we preach that, there's once, that we're once saved, that we don't believe in once saved, always saved. But what we wind up preaching is we're once saved, never saved. It just can't be done. But folks, in times of fear and regret, in the silent season of the night, when the eyes are sleepless and the brain is busy, and when the troubles that we know and are known about are unbearable, if we know just half of the story, do we really know the unknown? Isn't it always true that the daytime brings a better attitude of life? The duty of the Christian is not to judge himself in an hour of gloom. The verdict in this hour would cause you to determine that you're worthless. But only he who dwells in a light sees things as they really are. But far greater than that, sees things as they shall be. And he's greater than our hearts. He knows tomorrow. He knows our children. He knows our dedication. He knows that we're not really willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And what he knows, we of course know, but we override what we know because of the condemnation that we see in our lives. So greater is our heart than God. Well, that's the way this verse would have to be written if it was pursuant to what a lot of times members of the church of Christ believe of themselves. But the verse says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. In times of self-accusation, when the opportunity is over and the home is empty and the grave is made full, what is it that it's going to be concerning you and I? When there are loved ones that have passed and when we've had the opportunity to preach and teach to them the gospel, and we've never had the zeal or the enthusiasm or the intention of actually going after that lost soul. When you fill that grave, then the opportunity is no longer there. There's not only sorrow of parting, 
There's loneliness. Because of that loneliness, you've lost that loved one. And there's going to be nothing that would ever seem just the same anymore. And there comes a remorse for the never done or done unkindly or the fact that we have not done what we could have done to replace that and express that love that we have. Solomon said, before the pitcher breaks at the cistern, before death comes, we'd better really deal kindly with this attitude of trying to preach the gospel to those who know it not. You see, when love has been real, it hurts. Not when it's shallow. We can easily forget when there is no depth to the love. A lot of times people miss the services of the church and you ask them why. And you can tell by the answer that the depth of their love for Christ and His church is just not there. When it's shallow, they can easily forget it. But when the service of love that has overwhelmed them and has overcome them is so great in their hearts, you'll find out that they never falter. That is, the love always finds a way to get it done. But when it falters, does that mean that the person who has faltered in his love toward God has no worthiness? I was walking through the graveyard the other day and I saw some flowers that were laid on the grave. And I saw that those flowers had dried up and died. And I saw that the person who was given these flowers in memoriam or in honor was then shown a discredit and a disrespect that only dead flowers on those graves could have administered. It could have been that they had a good reason. It could have been that there was a good purpose. But I couldn't help but remember. It was always also true that they'd been forgotten. There is a remorse of cruelty. A shamefulness that comes in neglect. An empty response to true love that is unseen a lot of times when we miss the services of the church. When we have an opportunity to say something good and promote the cause of Christ. When we have an opportunity to strengthen or pat on the back a brother or sister in Christ. And we allow that to really go past. But one day when we stand in that place where now the grave is full and life seems empty, in the hour of darkness that we had not looked to and we had not seen with so much clarity, out of the millions of deeds that were done, if we remember only one that stands out better and tortures us greater, we don't understand the heart of God. What 1,000 days of happiness can eradicate no remembrance of sorrow. We've forgotten. Oh, what are the agonies of hell 
that Jesus expressed as he was telling the story of the Hadean world in the Luke the 15th chapter is when the rich man said, Send Abraham, my uh, Lazarus, that he, go, that he may go back and tell my brethren not to come here. Ah, oh, and here comes a statement that ought to haunt every one of us as we go to sleep at night. Son, remember that thou in thy good days had blessings and Lazarus evil, and now he has good. There's a lot of times the agony from hell is that which will cause us to remember. When our hearts condemn us, God is greater. And He doesn't want us as children of God to walk around with our lips dragging the ground and our attitude so remorse that we can't sell the product. You ever been a salesman? You didn't believe in what you were selling? You know who could tell it first? The person you're trying to sell the product. Look, if you're not sold on it, how can you think that they will be? If you don't have the enthusiasm for it, how do you think you can transmit that enthusiasm to them? If you can't, as we say in the language of uh, sailing, if you can't get your heart in it, get out of it. But there's a lot of times we've made mistakes. There's a lot of times that we've forgotten. There's a lot of times that that thousand days of happiness have just overwhelmed our remembrance of sorrow. And we don't see any sin in neglecting to come around this table on the first day of the week. Now message your thoughts. You've set in the Church of Christ a memorial. And you've cried out to those whom you've washed in the blood of Christ, come and show your appreciation. And yet there's no appreciation shown because members of the church don't remember. Oh, they're having a good right now. Health is good. Finances are good. Everything else is going fine. They're thinking about how to uh, raise their children so they can become doctors and nurses and lawyers and, and this and that and the other. How they're going to make them break the habits of their past where they had to work hard and miserable and in decrepit jobs. But my children and, my, and I'm going to send them to schools where they can always have the understanding of how to gain and get. But we forgot. We've forgotten the love that God had for us. We've forgotten what put us in a position to do that. We've forgotten how God has blessed us. And in forgetting, our heart has not condemned us. Because we think that we have the attitude of an aristocrat who owes no bounty to another man who allows no person to have an advantage over them. He does not make Jesus Christ the very purpose and essence of the exact existence that we live in. Then there's times that we have too much spiritual privilege. I think this is interesting if you go to Luke the 5th chapter and the 8th verse. 
Old Simon Peter is a guy that you got to love. If you read and study the scriptures, you just fall in love with this guy. He's just such a, a, a personality and such a, a pure heart. And he has so many things that he does that's right. But it came to pass in verse 6 of Luke 6. On another Sabbath that Christ entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find an accusation against him. And he knew their thoughts and said to the man which had a withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose up and stood forth. Then Jesus said unto them, I'll ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save life or destroy it? And looking around about him, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now my friend, what is it that this man was done? He had an advantage of a spiritual privilege. Now in the fifth chapter of Luke, we see what I was talking to about Simon Peter. And the eighth verse, the Bible says that Jesus had entered a ship. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great multitude of fishes. And that they beckoned unto their partners, verse 7, which were in the other ship, that they should come and help them. And they came and filled both the ships so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees and saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. I don't have the right to your fellowship. I don't have a right to your sacrifice. I just don't have the right to enjoy these privileges. Sometimes when we're faced with the goodness of God and see how God has loved us, we begin to feel so inadequate and ashamed. And the consciousness of our mind is stricken. And we see how unworthy and undeserving we really are. And crying out like Simon Peter. Lord, I don't deserve this. I'm a sinful man. We come to the Lord's table on the first day of the week. We come face to face with Jesus Christ. When we come into the presence of the King of Kings, if we did understand in whose presence we had come, we would reckon one thing that would have called us and made us not come if we allow our heart to condemn us. Now, I saw a bumper sticker the other day and I'm going to put the answer to it on the sign out front. See, God knows me. And He's not satisfied with me. And he knows that there's a lot of things that I need to change and work on. God knows that one of the things that maybe I need to work on the most is I'm just not really hungry or thirsty. Jesus reckoned, blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now there's some people that got the cup full before the cup was full. 
Some people were not hungry. Not hungry enough to come to all of the times when the church of Christ assembles for them to be fed. And their heart doesn't condemn them. Why? Is it because they feel so uncooked good and exceedingly righteous? Or is it that they have condemned themselves when God has placed in their presence a spiritual prowess and a spiritual power that should have caused them to feel like Simon Peter. Lord, I'm not worthy. Man, you give me an opportunity to hear and study the Word of God and I turn it down. You give me an opportunity to meet with the saints and to study the Word and then I turn it down. I'm poor and needy. I recognize that I have those needs. Somebody doesn't have to come along and knock me on the forehead and say, hey, Joe, you need to study all you can. And there's a lot of people that don't understand that without Christ there's no other refuge that they possess. And again, they don't understand the heart of God. His heart is greater. You cast yourself upon Him at His feet. You gain an attitude that Simon Peter expressed when he cried out in the 8th verse, I'm a sinful man. I had to learn all I could learn. Oh, I know that there have been times that people have missed a Bible study and they come back the next week and ask a question that was discussed in that Bible study. And you look at him and you say, well, had you been here, but see their hunger and their thirst had been abated. They felt that they knew enough. They had climbed to a certain place or a certain stage that they could ignore. <laughs> the disciples were with Jesus three and a half years. If there had been anybody or anything that could have ever taught them to save their soul, answered a question that no man could have answered, are improved into the mind of God in a way that we don't even see it shown in the New Testament. The disciples had an opportunity. But they failed. It's even to the extent that one whom we call Judas is carrying. And I'm afraid we give Judas too hard a time. We don't look in the mirror. When it started out, there was that love honeymoon period of time where Judas just couldn't do enough with Jesus. When he just had sweet fellowship with him in the temple. When he was his own favorite friend and they had a relationship that is envious of all those who know of Christ. But you remember the way it ended? Now why do you think that Judas Iscariot fell from the grace of God? He he got to the place that he thought he knew better. He got to the place that he didn't appreciate the opportunities of meeting and studying and being taught. He climbed to such a ladder of self-importance that he could do without God. 
you and I can fall to that great distance. But what we have and what we've been blessed with is what Judas carried never had. Underneath the promises of God of what God calls his everlasting arms. All the gift of the Holy Spirit, the fellowship of the Church of Christ, and a preacher who will preach the gospel so that people can hear it and respond to it and will be obedient to it, allows us a safety net, gives us an opportunity to come back to our senses. And if the word preached to us does some good, so that by the hardness of our hearts we don't turn it away, or like we talk about rolling water over a duck's back, it just keeps on rolling on off. If we take everything to our attention and we bring ourselves to the position that we know of the love of God, we then can have an opportunity to correct ourselves and to change our destiny and to prove to ourselves the love of God which we have in Christ Jesus because God says God is greater than our hearts and he does not seek to condemn us. I could keep going on but all we're going to do is keep going over the same issue. This great verse of scripture which a lot of times unfortunately people have used in a negative sense to try to show that since God's greater he's going to condemn us anyway we don't have a chance shows the very opposite. Because you see, God knows who he's dealing with. He knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. And he knows our failures. But he invested anyway. Now, I don't know about you. But if you've made a huge investment, do you like to see it fail? God has provided so much more to keep us in Christ, to keep us secure in Christ, to keep us supported in Christ, that we have an opportunity to be presented before His throne faultless with exceeding and great joy. We a lot of times have overlooked the way He's blessed us. Yeah, if you're just going by your heart, you've got a problem. Because it just may gauge you the wrong way. Or you may remember that the sins that you've committed in your mind are still there when God has overlooked them. And they don't exist. Or you may think that when you got down and out, you didn't have any help and you desecrated the name of the Lord. And like Peter was ready to throw in the towel. Or when you were in the pig pen, you didn't remember that you had nowhere to go but home. But remember, God is greater. God has provided us the strength and the encouragement of one another and the preaching of the Word so that we can always, as Paul told Timothy, be instant, in season, and out of season. There's a lot of people that quote that verse, but they don't look at the context. He said, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his coming and in his kingdom. Preach the word. Why? 
Be instant in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. Folks, if you don't have this, well, the very aid and the very strength that you can rely on is gone. And you have members of the Church of Christ that only occupy a pew. Not a place before God in heaven in prayer. If you're here tonight and need to respond to the invitation of the gospel, will you come as we stand and sing? We hope you have profited from today's study of the mind of God. If you would like a tape of today's program, write to the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ, 384 East Midway Road, White City, Florida, 34982. Remember, never take man's word, only God's word. The Bible, demanding a book, chapter, and verse for everything you accept as belief. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of In Search of the Mind of God with Minister Joe Wilson. As we continue to grow the church and carry the legacy of Joe David Wilson, in this next segment, you will hear sermons from the current preachers here at the Port St. Lucie Church of Christ. Good evening. It's good to see everyone here tonight. Decided to go through and create a little bit of a PowerPoint presentation as well with my sermon to kind of add to a little bit more of the theatrics and drive home the point just a little bit more, you know? So tonight I want to discuss a little bit about what is a congregation's greatest asset. We always stop and think, okay, well, what is an asset? You have assets and liabilities. They're kind of broken down into two separate things. But tonight we're going to talk about what is our greatest asset. And let's suppose that God spoke to this congregation directly this afternoon, and he said to us, let's see if my mouse works here. There we go. You are growing in faith, my son. Your confidence in his death, his resurrection, and my power is increasing. You're opening your lives to my word and my spirit. You are praying with a new earnestness. Because you're placing more faith in me and less faith in yourselves, your potential is growing. Therefore, I will bless you with a, with a tremendous asset. This asset will increase your outreach. Your capacity to do my work will increase. Your vision will grow. This asset will be an open door for serving me in ways that will amaze all who see you. Now, if God gave us that asset, what would it be? Some would say, ah, an infinite amount of money, right? If we had a bunch of money, we could do anything we wanted to do, right? (laughs) But with the right attitude and proper stewardship, money can be an asset. But... Having money will not create those blessings and those opportunities for us. Now, some may also say, hey, you know what? If we could just eradicate all of our debt, we'd be free and we'd be happy. We could do anything. We could go take out another loan, right? You see this perpetual problem that that continues on there? This would be an asset to us. But no indebtedness will not create those blessings and those opportunities. What is this eternal asset that God could give us? Well, Let's just ask God, see what he says. Now, God would say, what is this incredible asset, we would ask? 
And God would respond with something like, this great asset I give, I give you creates great potential for outreach and ministry is what is called diversity, right? Now, wait a minute. Let's think about that here, God. Let me get this straight. You want us to believe that diversity is an asset and it creates extraordinary potential? Now, God, diversity is not an asset or potential. It's a big handicap, right? Diversity means that we're all not alike within the congregation. In fact, we're very different. The fact that we are different in our membership is a problem, right? We're at least the beginning of problems. This is a disadvantage, not an advantage to us, right? If you're convinced that diversity in a congregation is a problem rather than an asset, I want to ask you how you might have formed that conclusion. What do you think diversity would be? What do you think diversity to be a spiritual liability? I anticipate that most of us would say that the goal of the church is to be a uniform and to produce uniformity among us. If the goal of the church is, is uniformity, then diversity would be a problem, right? From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, diversity was used to generate an opportunity to achieve God's greatest promise. Now let's think about this for a second. How many intimate disciples did Jesus have? Even the children would reply that Jesus had how many? Twelve disciples, right? Now, in those twelve men, do you see any uniformity or even diversity between all of them? Let's take a look at Luke chapter 6, verses 12. Luke chapter 6, verse 12, it says, About the time that Jesus went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night there, The next morning he called his disciples together and chose twelve of them to be his apostles. One was Simon and Jesus, named Peter. Another was Andrew, Peter's brother. There was also James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, and James, the son of Alphys. And the rest of the apostles were Simon, known as Eager One, or known as the Eager One. Jude, who was the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed Jesus. Now, do you see this incredible diversity that's going on here? I could easily illustrate that in many ways. To me, the most striking illustration of the diversity is seen in Matthew, sorry, that was the, which was seen here in Matthew, who was a tax collector, and Simon, who was a zealot. Now, let's think about that. Just to go into a little bit more detail, what is a zealot? We know what a tax collector is. But a zealot is a person who is a fanatical and uncompromising pursuit of their religious, political, or other ideals, according to the, the dictionary, as well as some of the, the Greek origin on here. So we can see here that Matthew was a tax collector, and Simon, who was a zealot, who was extremely diehard religious. He understood what was going on. And Matthew, prior to becoming one of the twelve apostles, collected taxes from the Jews from the Roman government. Now, we can see where this is a little bit of a problem here. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 19, it says, As Jesus was leaving, he saw a tax collector named Matthew sitting at the place for paying taxes. Jesus said to him, Come with me. Matthew got up and went with him. Later, Jesus' disciples were having dinner at Matthew's house. 
Now, many tax collectors and other sinners were there, and some of the Pharisees asked Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and other sinners? Jesus heard them and answered, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. Go and learn what the scriptures mean, and when they say, Instead of offering sacrifices to me, I want you to be merciful to others. I didn't come to invite good people to be my followers. I invited sinners. Because Matthew was a tax collector for the government that destroyed Israel's independence and stationed an occupational force in their own country, Matthew was regarded to be a traitor to his own nation by many of his fellow Jews. Now, many Jews were insulted by this by choosing a tax collector to be one of the 12 apostles, which is very interesting because you, now you have this very diverse group that's coming on here. Simon, before becoming one of the 12 apostles, belonged to, to the Zealots, a radical or religious political group that believed Jews who collected taxes for the Roman government were committing treason against God. So you can already see this strife that's already starting to form within the apostles themselves there. They believed that God expected them to assassinate Jews who assisted the Roman government. So zealots in the past killed tax collectors whenever it was possible because they went against what God's plan was. Thus Simon would have killed Matthew prior to the discipleship, which is very interesting. Now how could Jesus select, select as two of the twelve men that were different. That defines our expectation and understanding. Matthew and Simon had nothing in common before they followed Jesus, and the only thing that they had in common as disciples was that they both followed Jesus. You see that commonality that's there? In fact, neither Matthew or Simon would have much in common with the other ten disciples that were there. This is creating that group of diversity there within the apostles. Now, Jesus deliberately creating such diversity within the Twelve declares an important lesson that we must see and understand clearly here. The diversity that Jesus established within the discipleship clearly emphasizes his determination to save all kinds of people. Peter could have never effectively, could, could never have worked effectively with people Matthew could identify with, and Matthew could never identify with the effectively communicate to the people that Simon could teach. If we understand the diversity Jesus deliberately created within the Twelve, it should not surprise us that he deliberately designed the church to be diverse. And the church by divine design, or sorry, is the church by divine designed to be diverse? Is diversity within the church the intent of God, Christ, and the Spirit? Absolutely. Look at what the books of Acts reveals to us about the establishment of growth of the church under the specific guidance of Christ and the Spirit. From day one, Acts 2 existed in a complex diversity. The first converts were made of people who came to Jerusalem to observe the Passover. The first who heard and responded to the good news about Jesus' resurrection included Jews from Galilee and Jews from Judea, who had major differences from the beginning. Jews in Palestines and Jews from non-Jewish nations, which had even greater differences at the time, and converted non-Jews who had even more differences. 
Then under the direct guidance of Jesus and the Spirit, the gospel was expended to non-Jews who already believed in God in Acts 10 with Paul and Cornelius. We know the story that, that we have learned in the past. In Acts 11, we learn that the gospel was expended to non-Jews who did not believe in God. And then going on in the Acts 13, God commissioned that two of his best preachers to work in the Roman world among non-Jews who worshipped idols. Within a few years the church was established, it was incredibly diverse, more diverse than any of us had ever known in our lifetimes. In fact, congregations were so diverse that it was common for the congregations to have problems accepting their own diversity because of this. Now, in Romans 12, verses 3 through 8, it's clear, it's clear documentation on this fact. So, Romans 12, 3 through 8, I realize how kind God has been to me. And so I tell each of you not to think you are better than you, are, than you really are. Use good sense and measure yourself by the, by the amount of faith that God has given to you. A body is made up of many parts, and each of them has its own use. That is how it is with us. There are many of us, but we are each part of the body of Christ as well as part of one another. God has also given us the different gifts to use. If we can prophecy, we should do it according to the faith we have. If we can serve others, we should serve. If we can teach, we should teach. If we can encourage others, we should also encourage them. If we can give them, if we can give, we should be generous. If we are leaders, we should do our best. If we are good to others, we should also do it cheerfully. Within your diversity, don't be concerned about your own significance and importance. Focus your concern on a desire to have sound judgment and using your God-given faith and potential. A congregation in its diversity is like a physical body of a person. There are many different body parts that have totally different functions, completely different purposes, and dissimilar abilities. Determine your gift God has given you as part of your body and function diligently doing what God has enabled you to do. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 31, documents God's design for a congregation to be diverse in even greater detail. The body of Christ has many different parts, just as, other, just as any other body does. Some of us are Jews, others are Gentiles. Some of us are slaves, and others are free. But God's Spirit baptized each one of us and made us a part of the body of Christ. Now we each drink from the same Spirit. Our bodies don't just have one part, they have many parts. Suppose a foot says, I'm not a hand, and so I'm not part of the body. Wouldn't the foot still belong to the body? Or suppose an ear says, I'm not an eye, and so I'm not a part of the body. Wouldn't the ear still be belong to the body? If our bodies were only an eye, we could only hear a thing. And if we were only an ear, we couldn't smell a thing. But God has put all parts of the body together in a way he decided it's best. A body isn't really a body unless there is more than one part. It takes many parts to make a single body. That's why eyes cannot say they do not need hands. That is also why the head cannot say that it doesn't need feet. In fact, we, in fact, we cannot get along without parts of the body 
that seem to be the weakest. We take special care to dress up some parts of our body. We are modest about other personal parts, but we don't have the modest parts about other parts. God put our bodies together in such a way that even the parts that seem the least important are valuable. He does this to make all parts of the body work together smoothly, each part caring about other parts. If one part of our body hurts, we hurt all over. If one part of our body is honored, the whole body is happy. Together you are the body of Christ. Each one, each one of you is part of a body. First, God chose some people to be apostles and prophets and teachers of the church. But also he, came, he chose some to perform miracles, to heal the sick, or help others, or be leaders, of speak, speak different kinds of languages. Not everyone is an apostle. Not everyone is a prophet. Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone can perform miracles. Not everyone can heal the sick. Not everyone can speak different kinds of languages. Not everyone can, can tell what these languages mean. I want you to desire the best gifts, so I will show you a much better way. Now, Paul told the diverse congregation at Corinth that the church and the physical body are alike because the church exists as Christ's body and mind. It is formed from Jews and non-Jews, and from slaves and people who are not free. You do not find any greater differences than are those that are found in these two groupings. If you do not have diversity, you do not have a body, because a body must function in many distinctly different ways to exist. God placed each person in the body. Our differences came from God, and God has a use for each one of us within the body that will bring health and strength to the body itself. God never intended for all of us to be alike and do the exact same thing. Now, allow me to give a clearer picture, a practical illustration of what the blessing of diversity is. I have a body and in all parts are interconnected and mutually dependent. My eyeball and my thumbs have exactly nothing in common as far as body parts are concerned. They have nothing in common in their individual functions. Their purposes are not even remotely the same. They are not even made of the same tissue and certainly don't have the same structure as an eyeball and a thumb or about as dissimilar as you can get. My eyeball could say arrogantly, the body would be in a terrible fix if it did not have me to move. I'm the body's light. I'm the body's guidance system. And without me, the body just can't plain function, right? 